All right, turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We're continuing in our study, and for those who need a review, those who just need to be caught up to speed, we began the study of Revelation by saying that the key of the book of Revelation is to look for Christ. The book of Revelation reveals an attribute, it reveals characteristics of who Jesus Christ is. And today, if you could make this the focus, if you make this the highlight of the last remaining portion of this chapter, the focus is on the mercy of Jesus Christ. The mercy of Jesus Christ. His mercy towards sinners. As a recap, remember, we said we want to keep in mind the next major events taking place in God's timeline of events. Um, This will be a bigger picture of things, and then we'll kind of get narrower into where we're going today. We said that the next major event on God's calendar of things to come is the rapture. This is an event described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So the rapture, uh, both those who have died and those who are still living during the church age will meet the Lord in the air and will forever be with the Lord. So that's the next major event. The the believers taken out of this world, raptured to be with the Lord. Following the rapture, there's this seven-year period of time called the tribulation period. And it's interesting because this tribulation period is broken up into two parts, three and a half a year parts in each. The first three and a half years are described as the beginning of sorrows. The last three and a half years are described as the great tribulation. Uh, A period of time, this seven-year period of time will be a time where God will finally judge the world, finally pour out his wrath upon the world for their sins, for their refusal to accept him as Lord and Savior, for their wickedness. God will send plagues. He'll send natural disasters. He will, uh, you'll see wars raging. You'll see um, vegetation burned up. You'll see many different things happening during this time. And it will be a fearful thing A fearful time unlike anything this world has ever seen before. And each event that takes place in the tribulation is a judgment upon this world, both unbelieving Jews as well as unbelieving Gentiles. These judgments, as we said earlier, are described as seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments. There are seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and there are seven bowl judgments. Each judgment... Uh, upon the earth, uh, each one of these 21 things is a major event or a judgment upon the earth that will take place during the seven-year period. What's interesting, though, is that when we get to that seventh seal, we find that contained within the seventh seal are seven trumpet judgments. And when we get to that seventh trumpet judgment, we find contained within that seventh trumpet judgment are seven bold judgments. And the idea is that as time moves on, things are getting rapidly, it's rapidly intensifying the judgments that are happening. They're happening quicker with less time in between. Um, so, so far, if you were to kind of figure out where we've been so far up to chapter 7, so far we've just seen the first six sealed judgments. 
Right now, this chapter, we are between seal 6 and seal 7. And uh, if you remember, the first seal being broken was the appearance of the Antichrist onto the world stage. He was the one who offered false peace, a promise that the world would be at peace with each other, which, as we later come to find, is not a, a true lasting peace. It's, he will break his treaty, and there will be wars, and there will be um, all sorts of horrendous things happening. But the first seal is a promise of peace with the Antichrist. Uh, the second seal being broken reveals wars. It reveals brutal, brutal killings. It reveals anarchy. This is all in chapter 6. Uh, this third seal reveals famine, inflation greater than we've ever seen before, to the point where in order to buy bread, you have to work your entire days waged. Put that towards just buying a loaf of bread. Uh, unlike anything this world has ever seen. The fourth seal represents a quarter of the world's population dying by sword, by famine, by uh, hunger, by beasts of the field. If it were to happen today with a population of 8 billion, you'd have 2 billion people dead in one judgment. You have the fifth seal where you see the martyrs who have been slain for their faith crying out to God to avenge them of their blood. You then have the sixth seal, which is what we read about two weeks ago, where there will be great earthquakes, great cosmic disturbances, uh, which causes the sun to become black, the moon to become like blood, you see then stars falling from the sky down to the earth. The sky is rolled up like a scroll. Every mountain and island is moved out of its place. And upon seeing these great signs, upon seeing these great wonders, the people on the earth, it says, will be terrified. It says they will realize that it is God who is judging them. It is God who is bringing forth these great signs, these great wonders, these great judgments. And it says... Um, that mankind, it says, they will hide themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Men and women will realize that God's judgment is upon them and they will beg that mountains will just kill them, take them out of their anguish rather than endure God's wrath upon them, rather than endure what is to come for them. People will be, rather be put out of their misery than endure the judgments of God and the wrath of the Lamb. And it's interesting that in their cry for death, they acknowledge that, yes, indeed, God's wrath has come upon them, but then they rhetorically ask the question, who is able to stand? Because it appears, by all accounts, that no one would be able to stand. It appears to them that no one can stand before God's judgments. No one can stand before him during this horrific time. And yet, we're going to see here in this chapter, and we'll see later on in the Revelation, that there indeed are those who can stand. There are those that the Bible teaches will stand. And um, we, we read about this last week, um, Noad pointed it out that God in his abundant mercy will spare a group of people. Um, and we come to find that those who can stand before the, Lamb, before the Lamb are those who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who acknowledge, you know what, I'm a sinner. Those who acknowledge, you know what, Jesus Christ paid for my sins so that I could have a relationship with him, so that I could be forgiven of my sins. Those are the ones who can stand. Those who are saved, those who have placed their trust in him 
are those who are able to stand. The Bible teaches that during the tribulation, during a time of war, during a time of famine, during a time of earthquakes, pestilences, plagues, during a time where there will be death of billions of people because of God's righteous judgments, during that time, the Bible teaches that there will be a great salvation, unlike any other time in human history, because it will involve people of every nation, every tribe, every people of every, uh, uh, of every color, of every tongue, every, every one of these people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a great revival, a great awakening that will happen during this tribulation period where God will save millions of people, if not more, both Jew and Gentiles, even during this last time, even during these last days. You see, the question of who is able to stand, as I said, is answered in this chapter. This chapter, if you were to describe what it's about, it's a pause, it's a parenthesis in the middle of God's judgments. It's a parenthesis where God introduces groups of people, um, or, or people, or new characters, if you will, that will later be shown throughout the book of Revelation. We talked about um, last week that in, verses, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, we talked about how there is going to be um, this one group of people. And, and, you, and you, know, you hear me say that there's going to be this great revival, there's going to be a great um, awakening where people will turn to God, be saved in millions. But you wonder, well, who... Uh, you know, how is God going to do this? Who, who are going to be the evangelists who are going to go out and do this? And we read last week that there's this group of 144,000 Jewish men that will come to a saving knowledge of the gospel. They will turn their lives over to Christ, and God will seal on their foreheads um, the symbol and that, they were, that they belong to God. And God will protect, he will preserve this 144,000, and they will witness to the world the truth of the gospel. They will be his evangelists. They will proclaim the way of salvation. In a time where Satan will attempt to persuade uh, other people into following after him, in a time where Satan will try to deceive and lie to as many people as he can, this 144,000 will be a constant voice of truth amidst all of what's happening on this earth. Not only is there 144,000 Jewish men who are present during this time, if we keep reading on in Revelation 11, God also will send two witnesses. These two witnesses appear for three and a half years during the tribulation period, and they are preachers of salvation. They, they preach that God freely is willing to forgive you of your sins if you will just simply turn to him. They will be powerful preachers. They are described as having supernatural powers by God in, in Revelation 11. Even, a, even the ability to control the rain from falling, the ability to turn water to blood, the ability to strike the earth with as many plagues as they see fit, God will use these witnesses so that men who have not yet trusted in Christ might be spared from the eternal judgment that would come, that would await them if they don't come to him. And then in one final act of mercy, God will send one of his angels throughout the entire world proclaiming the gospel one final time so that everyone hears the good news, so that everyone has the opportunity to be saved. We read about this angel in Revelation 14. 
It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel preached to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So, you have the 144,000, you have these two witnesses, you have this angel that God provides to spread the gospel. Additionally, you also have those who have come to Christ as a result of the evangelism of all these others are also perpetuating the gospel being spread. And so, even in this final time where there's judgments coming upon this earth, where God is judging them righteously, even during this time, there will be those who come to Christ, who will accept Christ as their Savior. It will be a very costly decision to trust Him during this time, as we'll see later on in this chapter, but it will be the best decision they ever made. And to those who are hearing my message now or hear it later on and think to yourself, okay, well, that's a relief. I thought uh, that I had to decide before I, uh, I died um, or before Christ raptured the church, I still have a second chance. I possibly have seven more years to put it off if I need to. Uh, for those who are delaying the decision, for those who know the truth and have heard the truth of the gospel and have decided to not put your faith in Christ, uh, I, have to, I have to warn you that you would be sadly mistaken to think that you have more opportunities. Um, first, uh, second, second Thessalonians 2 makes it clear that there is no second chance for salvation, for those who have heard the gospel, for those who are uh, living in the age now, who know what they need to do to be saved, who has all this information upon them, and yet they say, you know what? I'd rather not trust him. I'd rather not put my faith in him. I'd rather keep on living in my sin because my sin is appealing to me. My sin is uh, it's pleasurable. I like it. I don't want to commit myself to following after God. I don't want to turn my life around and, and give him the reins. I'd rather just keep living this way. I'll think about God later. To those who decide to willfully reject the truth of God's word, who, who reject his plan of salvation for them, it says that in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, those that did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, it says they will be deceived by lying wonders and that the Antichrist uh, will provide many signs to deceive them. It says, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Those who are hard-hearted towards the gospel before the rapture will remain hardened. Those um, who first hardened their own heart, like Pharaoh did, will be hardened by God during this time. God will send a strong delusion upon them. If they, if they were unwilling to believe the Lord during a time of grace, during a time of really no real persecution, during a time where there's ease in coming to God, why would they ever come to God when their life depends upon it, when their life is at stake for it? And when they're being deceived and they have delusions upon them from the Lord himself and from the Antichrist, um, promoting lies and lying wonders. Which is why um, the Lord says today, Behold, now is the accepted time. 
Behold, today is the day of salvation. If you've heard the gospel, if you understand the salvation that God is offering to you today, don't put it off another day. Get right with God today. There is no better time than right now. The Bible says, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Be saved today. Have your sins forgiven and enter the abundant life that he offers you. In America, the gospel is so easily and freely distributed. Um, But outside of our country, even outside of North America, there is a planet that is largely biblically illiterate. Meaning they have no concept of what the Bible says. They have no concept of who Jesus is. Those that are saved during the tribulation are those who have either never heard the gospel or those who didn't have a complete understanding of the message of salvation. And as I said, through the work of the 144,000 Jews, through the work of these two witnesses, through the work of this angel going around the world proclaiming the gospel, through the work of those who come to a saving knowledge and continue on evangelizing, you will see millions of people coming to know Christ. And people who, before this tribulation period, never knew God. They never knew who he was or never fully understand it, but you will see them forsaking all that they know to follow after him during this time. Again, it will be a costly decision, but one of the best decisions that they will ever make in their entire lives. So we said, again, that this chapter, it's a parenthesis that God uses to introduce new groups of people. Last week, we saw the 144,000 Jewish men. Today, in chapter 7, if you'll turn with me, uh, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, we are introduced to a great multitude of martyrs who will come out of the great tribulation. That, that is the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. These martyrs are spoken of directly following the introduction of the 144,000 Jews, which could indicate that many of these people come to know Christ as a direct result of the evangelism of the witness, of the testimony of these Jewish people. So let's read about this this great multitude that we hear about in Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, And crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are those, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And so he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. 
For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So who is this group that we read about here, this great multitude of uh, believers um, that we hear about? So the first thing that we, we find out about this group of people is that they are believers of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues of every language. This is an all-inclusive group of people of every nation, every cultural background, every ethnicity, every skin color, every tribe, people from the most remote parts of this world. So this includes both Jews and Gentiles, people that will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The second thing we find out is that they are martyrs from the Great Tribulation period. Um, In verse 14, it tells us that these are martyrs coming out of the Great Tribulation period. They will be separate from the martyrs that we have in the church age. They'll be separate from the martyrs that we read about even in the last chapter. If you remember in the fifth fifth seal judgment, there are martyrs crying out to God to avenge their blood. And yet it appears as though those, based on the timeline that we see, that those martyrs are martyrs from an earlier portion of of the tribulation period. These martyrs are specifically said to come out of the Great Tribulation, that last three and a half years that we talked about. So these are both Jews and Gentiles martyred for their faith in Christ during this last three and a half years. The third thing we find out is that they are innumerable. And I think that is probably the most encouraging thing to me. If you think about it, it says it's a, a great multitude which no one could number. There are, meaning that there are so many people coming to Christ, there are so many people repenting, turning away from their sins and following after Him, that no man could number the amount of people because it's so great, because there's so many of them. It's a multitude beyond what anyone could even try to comprehend or count. And uh, I just, I find that awesome because it just highlights God's mercy. It highlights God's kindness to us even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of God righteously judging the world, God will still be extending the offer of salvation to anyone who will hear it. You know, we just, as you think about that, it just makes your heart want to worship Him for being such a merciful God. First Timothy reminds us, really, of the heart of God. It says in First Timothy 2 that God, God really does long for us to get right with him. God longs for a sinner to repent. And it says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4 that he is a God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John 3 16 reminds us of the universal offer that God has. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's on the heart of God. It's to show mercy. It's to see sinners who are corrupt and evil and wicked turn over their lives to him and get right with him, have a relationship with him. That's on the heart of God. God is patiently waiting for every last soul to turn over the keys of their life to Him. 
And even with all that goes on in the world, even in the worst time of human history, God still has the open invitation to anyone who has not hardened their heart to him. Anyone who is still soft and open to hearing his word. Anyone who hears his word and responds by faith. Even in this final three and a half years, the Holy Spirit will be drawing people to see their need for him. And countless souls will be saved by grace. I just, that to me is probably one of my favorite things about this passage is just the fact that no one could even number the amount of people um, just reminding us of God's unmeasurable mercy that he bestows upon all those who trust in him. The fourth thing that we see about these, uh, this great multitude is that they are in the presence of the Lord. It says that they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They are standing before him. They, these are the ones who during the last three and a half years came to saving knowledge of Christ. They were persecuted for their faith. And yet, even amidst their persecution, they didn't waver on their faith. They didn't recant their faith. They pursued this one who saved their souls, even to the very end. And they longed, probably all along, to see the Lord finally face to face. They, they longed to finally meet the Savior who saved their soul. And, and here they are now, finally face to face with their Savior, enjoying the blessings of being near to Him being near to the one who saved their souls from eternal damnation. What a blessing it will be for them to see him and stand before his throne. The fifth thing that we, we see is that they are clothed in white robes and holding palm branches. These martyrs are given white robes, which speaks of them being clothed in righteousness. Though they were born sinners, though they did not get saved until these final three and a half years, they when they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when they put all their hope in Him alone for salvation, God views them as righteous. And in His sight, these white robes are placed on them as a symbol of righteousness. And the same is true for any believer who trusts in Him, that God views them as righteous when they put their trust and faith in Him. And it's also interesting, too, that they're holding palm branches. Palm branches are a symbol of victory, meaning that death did not defeat them. Those that put them to death, though they may have thought that they won, those that put them to death will not triumph over them. Because for a believer, regardless of what the world does to you, regardless of what you know, mankind does to you, those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will be victorious even in death. And so these are victorious groups of people. The sixth thing that we know about them, and this is not found in this passage. This is just, if you keep on reading in Revelation, you find out a little bit more detail about this group of people. The sixth thing that we find out about this group of people is that God will avenge their blood. There is a call um, from the early martyrs that we read last chapter in Revelation 6, verse 10, where the martyrs cry out to God, um, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And if you remember, God responded to them by saying that you need to rest a little while longer until the number of those who are martyred is complete. So now, in response to that cry, now that their numbers are complete, Revelation 19 
verse 1, we see God finally avenging their blood. It says in Revelation 19, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For right ever true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the world with her fornication and has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So God, at the very end, um, towards the closing chapters of Revelation, will finally avenge those who have put to death the death of, who have put to death all of the saints who have trusted in him. And um, we know that this will happen also because you hear you see the heart of God displayed in Psalm 116. It says to him, it says about him that in Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Those who were martyred are precious to him. And though God is delaying their avenging of blood until later on, God will ultimately avenge their death. God will avenge their blood. And he will finally judge the world um, for persecuting them up to the point of being martyred. The seventh thing that we find out about this group of people, again, this is not mentioned in this passage, but it goes forward um, to one chapter beyond what we just saw um, in Revelation 20, where it will tell us that this group of people will reign with Christ for a thousand years. After this tribulation period is over, after the seven-year period of tribulation is over, um, God will descend down to this earth. He will return to the earth, and he will reign for a thousand years. That is what comes after the tribulation. So these martyrs, after the tribulation period is over, Christ, um, it says that these martyrs uh, who were, who were slain for their, their faith will be resurrected from the dead and will reign with Christ in his millennial kingdom, in this thousand-year reign. We read about this in Revelation 20, verse 4. It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their forehead uh, or their hand, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What a fantastic position that these people have. What an honor it is um, that they have, as well as all believers in, in the church age to have, to reign with Christ. Those who have placed their trust in, in Christ will reign with him for a thousand years when he returns to this earth. And so that is an overview. That is an overview of who these people are. Um, and, and what is to come for them? What, what is their ultimate end for them? It's, it's, it's to be avenged of their blood, and it's to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Um, so now we're going to return back to the vision that John saw. And, it, and the vision that John saw starts again in verse 10. It says, John saw this great multitude, in verse 10, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In response to all that God has done, they cry out to God, worshiping him for the salvation that he provided. I, I love this verse because this is really how all believers should respond. As we think about the salvation that God has provided you, if you know him, the, the, the forgiveness of sins that we've received, um, 
it should just stir our hearts to worship him for how great of salvation it is. Um, and so as they reflect upon, really, this group of people, though, even more so, because they're seeing God's judgment every day that they lived on the earth during this tribulation period. And so when they reflect upon God's mercy during this time, I think to an even greater extent, they have in their hearts to worship him for the salvation that even in these last days, uh, he rescued them from what could have been eternal damnation for their lives. And yet God spared them even out of that time. And so they praise him. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are uh, saints who, who realized during the Great Tribulation that as it says in Acts 4, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation only comes from God, and they recognize that God is the source of salvation, no one else. And um, they realize that salvation, again, was not something they could earn or deserve. It was rather something God freely bestowed upon them by faith. And so here they are worshiping God, worshiping the Lamb who was slain for their sins. And in response to their worship, we see a continuation of worship in verse 11 and 12, where it says, All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So as this great multitude is worshiping God, we see here others in heaven begin to join in in the, in, in the voices of, of those praising God, beginning, uh, and beginning to agree with them, beginning to uh, continue with that worship that was started to praise God who is worthy of it all. All the angelic beings, all other created beings falling on their faces to express their worship to the God of heaven. And as they join in to, to, to worship him, they, they say that he is worthy of seven distinct forms of honor. Upon seeing these martyrs entering into heaven, even out of this great tribulation period, um, these, these who are in heaven see even more clearly the wisdom and the power of God to save, even in the last hour. And so they worship him all the more for seeing the salvation that he brought to this great multitude of people as he extended his great mercy to them. Verse 13 says, Then one of the elders answered and saying, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So here John is asked by one of the 24 elders in heaven about who these people in the white robes are. Um, it's not because the elder didn't know, but it's more so he's trying to explain to John who these people are. Because John says, he admits, sir, you know, he, he doesn't know who these people are. But he wants to know. He wants to know who these ones are. And so the elder fills him on the details of who these people are. He says, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes white, or, or washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So... We were talking about the beginning, um, but John here, he, all he was doing at first is he's just witnessing these people. He doesn't have all the context and all the future verse references that we have today. So 
all, from John's point of view, he just sees people worshiping and just this great multitude, and he's not sure who these people are. And so he's not, they're not recognizable to him, and so the elder fills them in on who they are. And again, this is a group, a vast, a vast group of believers from every tribe, nation, tongue, people groups, being saved during the Great Tribulation. They were martyred because they belonged to Christ, because they refused to get the mark of the beast, because they refused to um, identify themselves with Satan, but instead chose to identify themselves with Christ. They chose to believe in him and die for the word of truth than to renounce their faith. That, that is the group of people we're looking at. These are the ones, it says, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I don't know if you've ever had a really difficult stain to get out of clothing, but I tried the other day to get some blood out of um, some cloth, and it, it was very difficult to get out blood, and you try all you can, and I'll tell you what, blood would not be the cleansing agent I would use to get blood out. Um, but here we see, though, um, even though blood typically stains, even though blood is extremely difficult to remove anything from clothes, we have this wonderful truth that the only way sins can be washed away is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the blood of the saints, uh, the blood that these saints wash their robes with, it doesn't stain their clothes. Instead, it removes and it cleanses every stain. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. It washes away all our sins. And this is a wonderful theme. The, the wonderful theme of the blood of the Lamb washing away sins is not a new concept to Revelation. In fact, the very first chapter in Revelation 1.5, um, Jesus speaks, is spoken of as him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood. Revelation 5.9 worships Jesus by saying, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We look further uh, back into like Hebrews, and we see in Hebrews 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Uh, Paul says in Romans 5 that we are justified by his blood, and so we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Ephesians 1.7 says we have redemption through his blood. Colossians says that Christ has made peace through the blood of his cross. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1, uh, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so all throughout the Bible, if you look all the way back to the New Testament or the Old Testament where the Mosaic law was given and they were offering up animal sacrifices, you see that those sacrifices we're pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ in the New Testament where he died and laid down his life for sinners, all pointing to the fact that his substitutionary death is necessary in order for people to be redeemed. The blood of Jesus Christ is precious. It's the only cleansing agent for sin. Even though these saints were martyred for their faith, their sacrificial death for their for being beheaded or being killed for their faith, that could not atone for their sins. 
They had to believe that Jesus Christ's sacrificial death was sufficient for their payment and only his death alone was sufficient. And that is true for believers throughout all of eternity, throughout all of human history. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away our sins. Only his blood can make us white as snow. Think about it in your own life. As you ponder these saints, as you ponder his blood as their sacrifice, have you trusted in the Lord for salvation? Have you had your sins washed away? That the Lord, as he does even during this time, still extends the offer of salvation today. He extends the offer to have your sins washed away. He offers to make you white as snow, to be forgiven and to enter into a relationship with him. Have you trusted? Have you had your sins washed away? These martyrs, um, they're before the Lord now. And so the question that arises in the last three verses, I think could be summarized by, now, now that they're before the Lord, what is awaiting them in heaven? What will heaven be like? Because these verses, though they are spoken to these great tribulation believers, um, the descriptions that we're given of what heaven will be like is applicable to all believers. We will all experience what is described here. We will all see um, and have the, the wonderful opportunity and the same blessings that they receive here. So what will heaven be like? And I think that's, that's what we're going to see here. And I just want to point out just really just five different things that we see of what heaven will be like for those who know Christ, for those who have placed their trust in him. What do we have to look forward to? What is the hope that we have to look forward to and when we finally do see him? So let's read this in, in verses 15 through 17 of this chapter. It says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so what will heaven be like? Heaven will be a place, first of all, of nearness to God. In heaven, there will be perfect nearness and fellowship to God. These believers are now in the very presence of God, before his throne, and he dwells among them. No longer is there this distance where they were once on earth, and God was way up in heaven. Now they are finally together, united with God in heaven. Believers, um, there will be believers um, finally, with their Savior. These believers uh, longed to see their Savior, as David did. David says in his Psalm 27, One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, and David's desire is this, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. That is what these believers will long for. That's what they will desire, to finally see their Savior face to face, to finally be near him. And um, heaven is described as a place of perfect nearness, perfect fellowship with God, uh, and for really all of those who have placed their faith in him. The second thing that we find out is that heaven is a place of service to the Lord. Heaven will be a place of service to him. It says that these martyrs will serve him day and night in his temple. 
I, I just think that's an awesome privilege. You know, if, if you were to currently be looking in the job market in whatever specialty you have, whatever role you are good at, and you were looking and you accepted a job offer, and you come to find out that your boss is a world leader or it's the president of the United States or the president of some other country, I mean, what an honor, like what a privilege it would be to know, you know what, I serve him. That's, that's my boss. He's the one who writes the checks. Um, and, and, or, you know, even just like containing that to yourself, thinking, wow, guys, like look at my job. Look what I get to do. I get to, I get to serve him. I get to, uh, I get to be a person who, you know, I, I look to him for, for all my, uh, for my tasks for the day, for, for what he wants me to do next. Like, that's a great privilege. And if we get excited for being, uh, you know, under the service of maybe a world leader or a president who's just a man, then how much greater is it to know that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be the one that we will serve in heaven? What a privilege, what an honor that will be one day where we get to serve him day and night, forever with the Lord, forever serving the greatest boss we will ever have for eternity. And um, I, I couldn't think of a greater, a greater role of serving that we could do. And um, it's also just as a, as a side note, it's interesting um, to note here that it says that day and night we will be serving him, meaning that it's continuous. And I think that's hard for our minds to comprehend because in our current bodies, after about 8 to 12 hours, we're done. We have to have, you know, we have to be refreshed. We have to have time off. We have to, you know, refresh ourselves because our bodies are very limited in what we can do. And yet, in heaven, it's described as a place where there'll be no sleep. There's no, there's no need for it because our bodies right now constrain us, but in heaven, we won't be constrained that way. We won't have the limitations that we currently have that prevent us um, that, that cause us to need sleep. We will have this wonderful opportunity serving him day and night for eternity. The third thing uh, that we find out what heaven will be like, it will be a place free from all affliction. No longer will these uh, believers hunger any longer. No longer will they thirst. No longer will the sun beat down on them. The phrasing here doesn't make a whole lot of sense initially until you read on more of what will take place in the Great Tribulation. Because during the Great Tribulation, we read um, later on in Revelation 13, verse 16, that Satan will require that in order to buy or sell, you must take the mark of the beast, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name, which is 666. which means that by refusing this mark, by refusing to be associated with the Antichrist or with Satan himself, um, by refusing to get that mark on them, they will, these will be believers who likely went hungry. They went without basic necessities. They went thirsting because they had no access, because they refused to worship Satan. They refused to get that mark. And so they are basically hungering and thirsting while on this earth uh, because of the lack of uh, their, their, their unwillingness to, uh, to turn and recant of their faith. Um, and then as far as the, the phrasing, you know, the sun will no longer strike them, nor any heat, we read on in Revelation 16 that um, 
when we get to the fourth bold judgment, um, this is the one where the sun will begin to scorch people with fire and it will sear people because of intense heat. In heaven, though, um, there is no longer any of that. They are completely safe, completely satisfied. There's no longer, they're no longer to be hungry. They no longer will thirst. No longer will the sun beat down on them. No longer will the heat get to them. They will be free of all afflictions. And the same is true for us. I mean, we're not going to be experiencing that kind of situation, and we don't experience that today, but in our own lives, we have various afflictions. We have various things that um, trouble our hearts. And yet when we get to heaven, all of our afflictions, all of our troubles will be done away with. We'll forever be with the Lord, and there'll be perfect peace, um, perfect rest there. We'll be satisfied in Him. The fourth thing that we, we read about is that the Lord will shepherd his people there. I think this one is the easiest to see when you do a compare and contrast because when you contrast what's happening on the earth, you hear here on the earth, you know, these believers have just come out of a place where there's endless wars, famines, death, um, earthquakes. That's only what we've gotten to so far. Next week, I'm just going to do a real quick summary of what we'll talk about in the next few weeks, but we've gotten to the first six seal judgments. Next week, we'll start talking about trumpet judgments. In the first few trumpet judgments, this is what's to come. A third of the grass and trees burned up. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the fresh water turned bitter. Locusts, or maybe demonic beings, um, tormenting people. A third of what remains on earth then killed again. These are all just to come in the next six judgments, and then you have seven more after that. So these are just some of what will be experienced on earth. This is just a glimpse of what they will be going through. Um, and then on top of that, what's, that's just what God is doing. On top of that, these are people who have decided, no, I will follow the Lord. I will not receive the mark. And in response to that, you also have now the world turning against them and saying, okay, then we're going to kill you for that. And Satan will do his best uh, to, to martyr these people. And so not only is it just afflictions they're going through and, and judgments they're going through, it is also now the world out for their blood, out for their life. And um, there's that. <laughs> but then, um, and you know, and they're hungering and thirsting and all that we've talked about already. But then you now have here um, the total opposite. Then now that they've left the world, on the other side, here, here, here is what heaven is like. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of living water. It's just this beautiful picture we have here of the Lord, as it is in, in, in Psalm 23, being their, their shepherd. The Lord um, providing all of their needs. The Lord providing them with complete security. The Lord providing them with complete rest. The Lord providing them with uh, peace, um, leading them to fountains of living waters. And it's just this wonderful picture of the Lord guiding them along to this abundant provision in heaven. Uh, beautiful picture of the Lord as our shepherd leading us to a place of eternal rest. And so I think that's, that's easiest to see when you look at the earth and what it will be like, and then just the Lord there shepherding his people in heaven. It's just a wonderful picture. The last thing we see, and again, I, I say I like every line, but I really like this line too. Um, in heaven there will be 
no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. It says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. And I, I just think of, when I think of that line, I think of something that Rebecca and I went to earlier this year in a museum. We had the opportunity to go to a Holocaust museum in Dallas, Texas. And um, we got the opportunity to meet one of the survivors. Um, they, 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 every day they have one new person who shares their experience of what it was like during the Holocaust. And, um, you know, during that time, many people were ripped apart from their families. Many people were sent off, various family members sent off to different concentration camps. Uh, many died of starvation and dehydration because they didn't give them enough to even sustain life when they were there. Many people were tortured. Many people were forced to do uh, manual labor. They were treated like animals. They were herded each day, and they were abused each day that they were in those camps. And each day, those um, survivors, they retell the story of how fearful it was to wake up not knowing if today would be their final day, not knowing if they would ever get out of these camps, not knowing if they would ever see their family again, not knowing, you know, if they would see loved ones again. But I love to hear and read about other stories um, of, of what it was like when they were finally released, of when it all ended, when they finally let them go, what it was like to be reunited with their family. And, and you can just picture as they tell their stories of their, the little children running into their father's arms and the father just ever so tenderly just wiping away the tear of their eyes and saying, it's okay. You're safe now. It's all over now. They can't hurt you anymore. You're no longer going to be oppressed like you were. You're no longer going to be in the trouble you were in before. You're free from it all. You're okay now. You're safe. And I can only picture that as the picture of what the martyrs are going to be going through. They have been hunted. They have been persecuted up to death for what they've done. They've gone through a very traumatic time in these final three and a half years. Um, and, and God is basically saying to them, it's okay now. You're safe. You're home. You're with me. And uh, wiping away every tear. I think in our own lives, too, we're not going to be going through anything like that, but just in our own lives, there's a lot of loss. There's a lot of afflictions that go on. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of things that trouble us on a daily basis, and there's so many tears that you have in life because... You know, we're in a fallen world, and there's sin, and, and sin causes a lot of heartache. And, um, and yet, we know that when we finally do arrive in heaven, it'll be a place where he'll wipe away every tear. There's no longer going to be that sorrow. There's no longer that pain, that heartache that we have. There's no longer the troubles that we face here. And I, I, just, I think it just highlights God's tenderness, his compassion to us, um, and, and realizing that heaven is not a place of sadness or sorrow or reflecting on what happened, but rather it's a place of perfect joy. It's a place of just being with our Heavenly Father forever. In heaven, whatever burdens we carried in this life, they're done away with. There no longer is going to be any more sorrow, no more death, no more tears. So what a wonderful truth that is just as we, we close this chapter. And in the, in the closing hours before... Christ returns to this earth. Countless souls of every nation, tribe, groups of people, tongues will turn to the Lord, be saved. And again, that just shows God's mercy. 
it shows that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is patiently waiting for you today if you haven't trusted him. He's patiently waiting for you to turn to him, to put your trust in him, to believe upon him, to accept his offer of salvation. Have you today decided to trust him, to turn away from your sins and offer his gift? I just, my, my cry to you is just don't put it off any longer. Get right with God today and um, accept his gift of salvation. Lord Jesus, we just, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your mercy to us. Lord, we're so grateful that even in the midst of judgment, Lord, your mercy is still displayed and you are a great God. You are an awesome God. And Lord, as we think about not just your mercy, but just for those who know you, Lord, the hope that we have in heaven with you, Lord, it is so encouraging. It is so um, wonderful to look forward to, Lord. And we just, uh, we love you and we look forward to seeing you face to face. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.